0: Hi, my name is Brennan Shukart, and welcome to the Novus Homo. My guest this week is longtime HIV-AIDS activist Peter Staley. An early member of Act UP, a founding member of the Treatment Action Group, and one of the lead figures in David France's documentary, How to Survive a Plague, Peter is something of a legend within the world of HIV advocacy, and I am incredibly honored that he took the time to talk to me. He's also kind of a total dreamboat, and I will admit that I spent most of this interview blushing and stammering, so a big thank you to my fiancé slash producer, Jordan, for uh, making me sound smart. (laughs) Without further ado, here's Peter.
1: This call is now being recorded.
0: There
2: you go. Awesome.
1: There we go. Great to hear your voice. How are you doing? (laughs) Good. How are you? Doing very well. It's a very gray morning here in Los Angeles, it's unusual. usual, and uh, I enjoyed the debate last night. How are you doing? Oh, the debate, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty good. <laughs> it was quality television. It was like all the things kind of you want the debate to be, like, it was, <laughs> but no, but it was, it was informative about the positions of the candidates. Right. They created a distance between each other, but it was also civil and adult. <laughs> yep. I was yep. like, "Oh, serious people." And Lincoln happy yeah, um, he was sad uh, He was terrible, he was like a—he yeah. was just wilting under those lights. And sorry, do you have? Do you <laughs> you'd like to share on the uh, on the debate last night? I know you're a Hillary fan. You think she, yeah,
2: um, I am. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not immune to her faults, of which she has many, but I'm so scared of the Republicans gaining the White House and reversing yeah. a lot of the progress Obama's made, especially on the health care front, let alone the Supreme Court justices, that it scares the shit out of me. And I just. Yeah. So, electability just rises the, to the top of my heap in that regard, uh, simply right. based on those issues. And I'm willing to make I've- tons of compromises
1: for that one issue. <laughs> sure. To steal your own words, out of your mouth. I'm not immune to that argument. I wonder if uh, Hillary's sky-high unfavorable, like, I don't know if that she can overcome them. Like, I know that my parents, who are gay-loving, mock-news watchers, I can see them voting for Sanders. Neither one of them would ever hold their nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. And they are terrified of this Republican field. I don't think they like yes. any of them. But I just don't see those real, like, anti-Clinton Republicans. I can't see them voting for him.
2: Yeah, but the vast middle that determines our elections, they're a group that generally doesn't pay attention to the last moment. They're not as freaked out about the Republicans as your parents are. They're willing to consider a Republican. They probably don't have a very positive view of Hillary, but they think her competent. And in the end, what the polls are currently showing is that even with her negatives, which are at... After months of relentless attack or at very high levels, she polls better than most of the Republicans in one-to-one matchups. And I realize Bernie does too right now, but Bernie has not had the uh, negative machine turned against him yet, which obviously he will if he won the primaries. So he's this huge question mark. And people are relying on gut feelings and anecdotal and, oh, I think... Uh, you know, my friends and family will like the sound of him as well, but mm-hmm. it's this—it's this massive, untested question mark that they're willing to throw the dice on. Whereas there's much less of a question mark. I mean, it's going to be very close with Hillary. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. It'll be closer. It's going to be close regardless. But right. the puzzle pieces are much more visible with Hillary, um, right. including the negatives. So.
1: They had such good chemistry with each other on stage last mm-hmm. night and they had a, a natural ability to work together, which I hadn't even suspected yeah. before. I think for the first time like a lot of like I saw on my Facebook feed a lot this morning, Clinton Sanders twenty sixteen. People yeah. loved the idea of the two of them together. But that's not why I called the talk. <laughs> I probably talk about you. Let's jump into this as as, uh, undelicately as possible. Where did you grow up? Where? Yeah.
2: I was actually born in Sacramento, California, but my dad was a factory manager for Procter and Gamble, and they'd move him from factory to factory, and so we moved around a lot and cross-country when I was a kid, so I... Left Sacramento before I was even one year old and I've never been back. <laughs> I have no idea what the town's like. We were in Kansas City, then New Jersey, then all the way back to California. I lived in Long Beach as a young kid. And then we settled outside Philadelphia, uh, and mm-hmm. stopped moving at that point. So I was eight years old when we moved to
1: Berwyn, PA. Uh, and you are a homosexual? Um.
2: Yes. <laughs> How did you learn to be gay? I mean, you know, it's pretty standard story, but um, my earliest sexual thoughts were filled with male visuals. Um, <laughs> and I knew that that was very strange and out of the ordinary and uh, not considered normal. So I, I kept it completely to myself. And given where I grew up, I don't remember another gay person in my school system. Uh, of course there were, but nobody was out. And I went through elementary school, junior high school, high school, pretending I was straight and dating women and um, had a series of girlfriends. And and uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I finally started to try to explore that side of myself, um, which is such a shame. <laughs> <laughs> It really is such a shame. I'm so jealous of the kids today where they get to explore homosexualities as teenagers.
1: <laughs> so. you, you know, it's crazy because I got started uh, when I was 16 fooling around with other guys in my age. And I told that to a kid in his 20s recently and he looked at me with pity that I hadn't started so late. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my first day of sex was on my 20th birthday. That's how late it was.
1: Wow. How did back up about? I had just uh,
2: transferred to Oberlin College. And that okay. fall, the Gay and Lesbian Duty Union did a whole series of events around National Coming Out Day, which we just celebrated this past week. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anybody on campus yet. Just getting my bearings. And I thought I could sneak into a few of these events. without giving too much up and hear about this thing, homosexuality. And they had this film night that they were going to do where they were going to show a series of short informational documentary-type films about the gays. So I went in there by myself and sat down, and they had this wild short documentary that was like this British thing with a narrator and these staged scenes of how gay men would hook up, and then how gay men had sex. It was completely X-rated, but done in a very clinical, kind of like a African animals type documentary. <laughs> and then, and then the lioness. <laughs> looks at her, mate. (laughs) Um, You know, that type of thing. It was just it was hysterical, but they show these two guys using gaydar at a cocktail party and staring at each other across the room and then leading each other into the bedroom and then having oral sex, having anal sex, and this is what gay boys do. And of course... Whoa! But by the time they... You know, not even reach first base. They start kissing and start unbuttoning each other's shirts. I have this raging hard-on in my (laughs) pants, and that was the moment I said, "Okay, this is ridiculous. I have got to do this. (laughs) I have got to try this. This is the biggest turn-on I've ever seen." So, um, so I laid my plans, and I was like, "Well, how can I do this without?" anybody knowing and that January over winter break I had convinced my parents to let me travel to London by myself for a week to check out uh, an interview at the London School of Economics for a possible junior year abroad and they were excited about that idea so that January which is when my birthday is I flew to London and you know you arrive in the morning and I checked into a somebody's bed and breakfast and and then I started walking around looking for something gay (laughs) because I said well I'm going to do it in London because nobody knows me here I can do whatever I want and I walked around and in Soho I found there was a gay porn shop I got lucky so I walked in I was very nervous. I was the only client there, looking at magazines and early Betamax tapes, porn wow. tapes. And there was this, what looked to me like an older gentleman. He was probably only thirty-four, but <laughs> he looked like he looked like an older gentleman behind the register. So I, I, I stared at magazines for a while, and then worked up some courage and and went up to him and said, "So, can I ask you a favor? Can, can you tell me?" where it might be a good place to go out tonight for dancing or whatever. And I, I do a lousy British accent, and he says, oh, well, it, it depends on what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want, do you want your own age? Do you want my age? Do you want, <laughs> you know, he's doing all this. Thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, my age, maybe some, he said, well, do you want to dance or just a pub? And so I said, no, dancing sounds fun. And he said, well, you should go to heaven. So I said, sure, that sounds great. And he said, well, if you like, I'll take you there. We can meet up beforehand. And I said, okay, that's very nice of you. So I met him up, met up with him, and walked into this club, and it was like heaven. <laughs> it was all these shirtless men's, and I was one of the few Yanks in the audience, this newly minted 20-something Yank that was the new meet in town. And I was in, absolutely in hog heaven. Uh, and gentleman that I was, I decided I would go home with the kind man who took me, the guy behind the counter, and he, he had multiple jobs. He sewed dresses for drag queens, so as soon as we'd get into his flat, there were sequins everywhere. <laughs> oh my god. And, um, and so he was my first gay sex. And then I did the crash course that week. I had seven men in seven nights. And <laughs> I started, I did oral the first night. By, like, the second or third night, I got fucked. And by the fourth or fifth night, I topped. And by the time I came home, I was a fully knowledgeable, experienced homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that's my story. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Amazing. Uh, the crash course.
1: Oh, Wait. So um, you spent a week up there, and you came back to Oberlin.
2: Yep. Came back to Oberlin, started going to the gay and lesbian student union meetings, and started dating there a bit, and kind of came out a bit at Oberlin. And then when I got hired by J.P. Morgan or Morgan Guarantee, it was called at the time and moved to New York after college I went straight back into the closet Um, I had never come out to family I kind of came out at Oberlin because it was a very easy place to do that but
1: um, so when you say completely back into the closet were you leading a double life or were you yes
2: I was leading I was leading a double life I was a straight bond trader by day and had a girlfriend that my family thought was my girlfriend so I had I had a beard basically but on the weekends, I was enjoying uh, the gay life in the East Village uh, at either the bar or the boy bar. And then uh, after a few hours of beer and pool, I would head across the street to uh, the St. Mark's Baths. Legendary. Oh, by the way, the, so the dance club I blanked on was also in the East Village. It was called The Saint. How can you? Ah, how can yeah, we forget The Saint? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh,
1: so wait, what year did you move to New York? 83. So it must have been shortly thereafter that you joined Act Up, is that correct? Right? Act Up was
2: formed in '87, but I was, uh, I presuming that I was infected in the summer of '83 by this incredibly sexy bartender. <laughs> <laughs> who kind of rocked my world for two weeks. Um, oh. And then I found out, I found out I was positive in the fall of 85, right after Rock Hudson had died. And the country was in its first main age panic. What was that like? It's not a good time to find out. It, you know, it bifurcated my life. Uh, everything was, <laughs> I had a life before that day, and I have a completely different life ever since then, so. It was very frightening, and I didn't think I had long, but I decided it would only uh, hurt me if I constantly thought about death and dying. I've always been somebody who's good at compartmentalizing, and so I was able to kind of shunt uh, dark thoughts away and um, get down to serious business of trying to learn everything I could and see if I could buy myself some time. I didn't create some sort of illusion that I was going to live forever. I just said, let's see how much I can do to buy myself some time and see what's going on out there, what options I have, what's going on politically. I, I jumped on a very steep learning curve and climbed it quickly on the gay scene in New York, gay politics, AIDS politics, uh, AIDS politics nationally, AIDS research this was before ACT UP. I discovered the People with AIDS Coalition. I discovered GMAC. I met Michael Callan. I met Michael Hirsch. The first person I met who was out as HIV positive was Griffin Gold, who I met at a GMAC support group, and he became kind of my mentor then in the fall of 86, I started seeing headlines in the newspaper about a new group that was zapping uh, Reagan administration officials about AIDS. And they were called the Lavender Hill Mob. Griffin introduced me to the handful of guys that had founded this little radical group. And so I, I sat down to dinner with Bill Ballman, who was a founder, and said, I'm closeted on Wall Street. I can't join your group, but I really love what you're doing, and I'd love to help. Can I write some checks for you? So I became their sugar daddy, and uh, and they didn't need a lot of money. Uh, you know, they were just a handful of guys that were doing. Uh, heckling type saps. Um, given their uniqueness, that these were angry homosexuals interrupting high-level government officials, it, they would get big news. But by March of '87, Act Up formed, and everybody's energies just got sucked into that, including mine.
1: Why is that?
2: Oh, because they were they were like a cannon shot. It came out of Larry's speech and just hit the ground running with a membership of over 100 people right away. Uh, And their first demonstration got covered on national television. The FDA commissioner held a press conference in response to it, announcing some policy tweaks that were meaningless, but tried to respond in some way. And it was just real. They were a major story right away. Because nobody had seen large numbers of angry homosexuals up until that day. I mean, Stonewall was not televised. In fact, in 87, most of the country had never heard of Stonewall. Wow. It was that buried a story. It's only with the rise of LGBT rights since the AIDS crisis has LGBT history begun to crystallize in America's consciousness. But things like Harvey Milk's story and Stonewall were not known by the general public.
1: The assassination of Harvey Milk wasn't even really national news,
2: was it? It was, but only the initial uh, reporting. It it was a huge story the day it happened, but it was more about the mayor's assassination, and oh yeah, and also the first openly gay member of the city council was killed as well. And then it, it, you know, within forty-eight hours, the story had faded, and then there would be occasional bulletins from the trial. And I think there may have been uh, one night of stories about uh, the, the white night riots after the uh, verdict. Okay. Um, but unless you were, you know, somebody watching the national news, you could have blinked and missed all that and not known about all the LGBT politics in San Francisco, unless you were there. Yeah.
1: Was there any kind of national gay press at the time? There was some homophile
2: press, as they used to call it in the really old days before my time, and there was the New York native in New York and stuff like that, but if you were a closet case like me, you didn't even see any of that stuff or know about it, or you avoided it. <laughs> but you know, I started gobbling all that stuff up after my diagnosis.
1: I want to um, double back and ask you, how did you first become aware of that? It was, the, uh,
2: it was their very first demonstration. Uh, I got handed mm-hmm. a flyer, which they did on Wall Street. And uh, Morgan Guarantee was directly across the street from the Stock Exchange, so we were right there. And I I got to work early, and there were some people out before the demo started to kind of leaflet passerbys, and I got handed a leaflet that described the demands, and and then there was a little discussion on the trading floor, because everybody had got handed the leaflet that was a really disgusting discussion uh, where the head bond trader said, cut off the whole discussion and just ended it by saying well if you ask me they deserve to die because they all took it up the butt and I just sat there and stewed but then when I got home that night I saw it on CBS National News because I I used to watch Dan Rather back then and there it was and there was the FDA commissioner being interviewed and it was like wow I said I've got to uh, get involved with this group and they had cleverly put right on the flyer where they were meeting, so I was at the very next meeting and never stopped after that.
1: When did you stop leading the double
2: I did a, an absolutely crazy year, uh my first year of act up of the wildest double life I tried to <laughs> I tried to do up until that point. Where I was a, a closeted bond trader by day and create <laughs> a radical AIDS activist by night. I would come to meetings with my suit, and I avoided the larger demonstrations because I didn't want to show up on the news. If I did come to a demo, I would hold a, a placard very close to my face and be very aware of where the cameras were. And I was like, well, what can I do that where I, my assistance would be most helpful without having to publicly come out? So I became chair of the fundraising committee. And I did that for many years. But after like nine months of that, my immune system started to crash. And and I I was seeing the shrink. And I was kind of coming to the place realizing that the jig was up, that I couldn't keep leading that crazy kind of double life working at a high-tension job on Wall Street when I was getting progressively sicker. So right before ACT-UP's one-year anniversary, I walked into my boss's office first thing in the morning and spilled filled the beans, and told him he could tell everyone but that I'd be going on disability and leaving. And then that was my last hour in the office, last hour on Wall Street. And the very next week, ACT UP had its first anniversary demo on Wall Street, and I sat down in one of the first waves of people, got arrested, had a camera shoved in my face, was on local TV, Peter Staley, AIDS victim, it said.
1: Wow, what a way to come out. Yep.
2: Ah. Yep. So yeah, I came out big time. And then I started doing national press for the group. That's how most of my high school friends found out and stuff like that.
1: This was, what, a good five, six, seven years before ARVs came out? How did you maintain your health? Well, uh,
2: ACT came out the same month ACT UP was born. And I tried that at the original ridiculously high dose, and didn't only lasted a month or two before I had to give it up because it made me very anemic. Uh, I still had the job then, and I was actually nodding off at my trading desk, which is an almost impossible thing to do. So that was a very scary failure. But around the one-year anniversary, I went back to my doctor and said, why don't we just try a really small dose of AZT, even though it's probably suboptimal? But just a level I can tolerate, and he said, "Well, it's worth a try." I had a very, I had a great doctor and a very flexible one. So even though the dose was 1,200 to 1,500 milligrams back then, I just tried 300 milligrams, like one quarter, and amazingly, it worked for me. I got a nice pop in my CD4 cells from that, and it, I had no side effects. Oh, wow. and then by a year later, year and a half later. 88, closer to 89, DDI was in clinical trials, and the people who were dying in those clinical trials would have leftover AZT and DDI and would donate that to the buyer's clubs around the country. So New York's buyer's club was beginning to get its first supplies of bootleg DDI from patients with AIDS that were dying and having leftover supply. So I added low-dose DDI to my ACT with that bootleg supply and had another boost in the CD4s because of it. I was one of the outliers that had a very good response to the initial nucleoside analogs, the, the ACT and its sister drugs, and I was, And that's one of the reasons I'm probably alive today. Um, I was very lucky with those drugs. So Those strung me along for years until the protease inhibitors came out. And that's how I lived.
1: When protease inhibitors started to become available, did that have a noticeable change in things, socially or culturally?
2: Well, they became available in 96, right? That's 15 years into the crisis. So by that point, the community was so worn out and so traumatized by the ever-increasing number of memorials and deaths and caregiving, and fighting, and activism, and and the roller coaster ride that the last ten years had been of possible drugs that might help, and those drugs didn't turn out to do a whole lot, and up and down, and up and down, and hopes dashed right and left. There was quite a bit of just prove it to me uh, <laughs> attitude when the news about protease inhibitors first came out. It's like, yeah, yeah, we'll see. But the science was pretty unimpeachable, and the treatment activists knew that. We knew that it was something real. This wasn't cure-of-the-month bullshit that the press would gin up, and that it had amazing potential. And so everybody started getting their prescriptions to it in 86, and, and then it just kind of slowly dawned that it was going to save every You know, everybody went undetectable, and we were going to live. There was no great celebration, there was no great catharsis, there was no moment, it just kind of happened, and because of the pain and exhaustion that everybody had been through for 15 years, sadly the first reaction was to, okay, let's move on from this. <laughs> you know, let's move on how? Oh, you mean like? Move on mentally. Move on mentally. Like and, and you know, all of this t- never t- happened. Yeah, and Clinton was in office, and we had gays in the military and gay rights. We were pivoting to gay rights issues like that. And so the community just moved on as if and and never processed anything. And within a few years, it was hard to hear anybody talk about age in the gay community.
1: I came out in 99. There was no, no conversation about HIV. No real conversation. There was fear. There was a lot of young guys telling other young guys not to hook up with older guys because of fear. But that was the only conversation around HIV that I heard when I came out. It's funny, you were talking about the, the evolution of people's attitude. It sounds eerily similar to press that it feels like PrEP is uh, reigniting a conversation about HIV. It's been dormant for a really long time. Right. Maybe that just might be my, like, <laughs> my <laughs> the bubble that I'm living in. But, you know, I'm seeing HIV negative gay men talk about HIV in a way that I never have. Right. right which is hopeful and exciting for yep.
2: me, at least personally. Was, yeah, uh, I'm, very hope- I'm very hopeful about it, too. It, it is the first conversation that has happened since 96. <laughs> and uh, that's, a sad, that's a sad reality, but um, thank God for it. So there's kind of a silver lining to, the, to how controversial PrEP has been, in the sense that it got gay men talking about HIV. It broke that logjam. And, and that conversation is more of a lifesaver than, in, than any pill. So,
1: Yeah, I found myself kind of thankful for the controversy recently because almost all of the early stories were about the fight around it. At the time, uh, when in 2012, I was the editor of Positive Frontiers. So every round of... Um, let's call it not entirely accurate information coming out of the the anti-camp that, you know, AHF forced those of us who had a lot of hope for PrEP to refine our argument, to dig deeper into the numbers, to become more educated. I feel like those debates made us all smarter about it.
2: Yep, yep, I agree. Because it led to whole discussions about undetectable and viral load and... Yeah,
1: yeah. ...sexiousness
2: like, and... Up until PrEP, the whole avoidance of HIV schematic was deeply, deeply flawed. It was avoid somebody who's positive, try to sort. ask the person if they're negative. If they tell you you're negative and he's young, then he's probably negative and you're probably safe and you guys can uh, bear back. And that is completely ask backwards in the sense of lowering your risk you're actually putting in yourself in one of the highest risk circumstances in that regard because the guy who thinks he's negative and has recently seroconverted is the most infectious guy walking around
1: So yeah. i have a friend who says the safest sex you can have is with a guy who's positive who's on treatment
2: yes it is the safest With current technology, except for very rare circumstances, it's almost impossible for a negative person to really know that they're negative unless they rarely have sex, and they they did a test well after their last sex, and the sex that they're proposing to have with you is the first sex they've had since their test. In that rare circumstance,
1: if you can believe all that, (laughs) if you can find one of those eight guys. (laughs) So part of the reason I'm doing this, had the idea of gay men. We've been shaped by our exclusion and our secrecy, and then on top of that, the tragedy of AIDS, and the exclusion is receding. We are welcomed to assimilate with open arms in most parts of the country, and I personally think that Truvada marks the end of AIDS, like you see in San Francisco, and I was wondering if you feel that same way. Does PrEP mark the end of AIDS, or the beginning of the end of AIDS, more accurately, and who are we when we aren't excluded and we don't live with that fear constantly? Like, what what happens to gay culture then?
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I don't see why we... I would hate that gay culture has to feel it lives, you know, that it needs to live in a state of fear the rest of its life. And I vehemently push back against those who say, well, what about the next virus? Talk about PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there have been two sexually transmitted pathogens in all of mankind's history that have killed en masse. Just two, uh, syphilis and HIV. We're talking sexually transmitted. That's the primary mode of transmission for the pathogen. Those happened about 500 years apart. Syphilis is still with us. HIV will always be with us. But tell gay men and only gay men because heterosexuals can keep having babies, that we have to wear condoms the rest of our existence because of virus number three in mankind's history. (laughs) Doesn't make a whole lot of public health sense. It's a little bit traumatizing, and it's just slightly self-loathing. So I don't want to. I don't think we need to live that way anymore. And that's a big change. But from a public health standpoint, this uh, may be near the end of AIDS in San Francisco. But this is far from the end of AIDS in most other locations in the U.S., let alone the world. And there's just a tremendous amount of work left to be done. The good news is that. Almost any place in the world can be put on the right trajectory with the right political leadership because of today's current tools, because of TASP, Treatment as Prevention, and because of PrEP. Uh, You can begin to bend a curve down pretty much at any place in the world, but you need that leadership. And in the red areas of the U.S., the epidemic rages on. So um, we're going to have plenty of work to do for many years.
1: I, I, I look forward to many years of doing that work. And thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Yep. You have a good day.
0: Yep. Bye. Bye. There you go. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. Please tune in next week when I will be joined by writer and educator Ray Spannon for a conversation about prep and polyamory. Don't worry, I promise this podcast isn't going to be all white dudes talking about AIDS, but it is for at least another week. <laughs> After that, uh, we're going to be mixing things up quite a bit. I'll be talking to director Eli Berry. After that, I'll be joined by Brontez Purnell, who, in addition to being a good friend of mine, is a talented musician and a brilliant writer. Until next time, this is Brendan Shukart with the Homo signing out.